topic of how Buddhism got to where it is. So welcome everybody to Sunday uh, uh, get together. And we've got a question now about how the Buddhism came to the West. And I'd like to introduce the answer to that question by talking about, well, how did Buddhism spread at all? And the answer to that has actually a lot to do with, uh, let us say, uh, perpetual, consistent, but in long cycles, unrest in China called the dynasties of this, that, and the other thing. And so what had happened originally that things got started was that there were Chinese who came to India because they didn't have much of any place else to go. And that's where they got introduced to the Buddhism. So what that means is you've got a few students coming into the company of a whole lot of nobles. And that's where the Buddha Dhamma really rubs off well. And so they started translating stuff way, way back when, about the time of the Sok, in fact. I don't know that much about Chinese history to put what world was going on when. But we're talking again about 300 BC. And that's, in fact, when the documents in Chinese start showing up that are actually plugging holes in some of the stuff that's been left in the Sanskrit in India, because later a lot of it got wiped out intentionally. And so we've actually, in some cases, got better literature in Chinese than we do in Pali. Uh, so uh, the next point is, is that uh, because of uh, intentional wandering around, that the Buddha supported that. And not only did he support it in the sense that their suttas about uh, when a guy is ready to go, or if he's going to go alone. And so we had that stuff started right in the time of the Buddha. And uh, that means that it is actually possible for Socrates in Greece to have met a Buddhist monk. It's also possible that the Essenes or the Essenes that they have in uh, uh, the desert around Jerusalem someplace, uh, live that kind of lifestyle that, in fact, goes along with the ritual bathing that was common in the time of the Buddha. So there's, there's slabs of little evidence that Buddhism was actually in Western culture from the, from the Western's point of view, and as well as the dictates from the Buddha uh, to go under about. But we also know that uh, King Asok made a point of it. He made a real point of it. So he sent emissaries along with some of the Chinese back into China. He sent them west. And then, in fact, there is an organization that dates from that time that uh, the word in English therapy comes from. And that the, uh, this group was in Alexandria. I mean, hint, hint, we're talking about that time frame. Uh, 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 so they were located in Alexandria, and that the, uh, the, the name of the organization was Therapute, and that they were healers. 
and they all dressed in white. And uh, by the way, on the side, the robes of the Buddhist monk are now orange, but originally it was just dirty white. And then they started dyeing them in um, uh, in various uh, wood, like uh, jackfruit and things like that, to hide the stains, mostly blood stains, because a lot of the time the robes were made out of funeral cloth, the shrouds. After the guy doesn't need it anymore, we take the shrouds and make robes. So uh, back to the point about uh, the transfers was happening all over. And the important point was, is that it was nobles carrying the Dhamma with them, and in often cases, taking Sangha along in the sense that they often traveled in pairs or groups of threes and fours and small groups. So this is how Buddhism got started and carried in Asia. So that when they arrived, wherever they went, they had the entire triple gem. They had the, the Dhamma, they were the Buddha, and they were in Sangha together. And so that was that's what they do to help to, to get it established and growing. Now, how did the West get introduced to Buddhism? We could imagine that what happened was probably in Sri Lanka that some British army officer walks into a temple, kicking things around, looking for what's going on, and sees a whole bunch of bowing and scraping at a statue going on. And that's his understanding of Buddhism. That's the original understanding. Bowing and scraping in front of a statue. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. It's deeply buried in our culture. That's the original point. That's what they do. I mean, that's what you guys are doing right this very minute. Except the statue is in your head. Other than that, what's the point? You see. So, uh, later, there were things that happened that give some indication. One was um, in the 1830s, there were people that wrote in Boston. Shelley, I think, no, Shelley came later. Uh, but uh, who wrote Walden? Thoreau. Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau and his buddy Emerson. And his and uh, Emerson had a girlfriend. I forget her name. But that all of the poetry that comes out of that, and especially uh, Walden, is America's first attempt at Buddhism. That they had some books, they got something. Okay. The second one came around the 1880s, which corresponds to. Internet. We lost somebody, I guess. So the internet left. Carl left. Okay. You cut off uh, at the 18, around the 1880s. Okay. Yes. Uh, Madame Blosky and Colonel Alcott 
and their protege, Krishnamurti. And they were in southern India, but these were all uh, Americans and British and, and all of that kind of stuff with a lot of literature. And that was the second introduction of Buddhism. But it was highly mixed with Hinduism. Though Buddhism and Hinduism do saddle aside each other and have some mixing. But within that early American time, Fix too much so that people really can't tell much difference. Mm. There was a lot of mixing in there. Uh, and also, uh, during that time from the 1880s to the uh, two, let us say, time of World War One and then World War Two and all of that kind of stuff, people had a pretty low class view of Asia as well as not a lot of transportation, but a whole lot of snobbery. And so things didn't look good. So from in that time now, we can pull up to about 1950s when C.D. Suzuki and others were trying to break down that barrier that America had about if you're anti-Japanese, you're anti-anything that, that is that far east so um zen actually made it in through the door of california because california was a little bit more open to asia than the rest of the u.s and so that's the basics now here's the point a in asia buddhism spread all to into japan and korea over a few centuries, but always by nobles. Buddhism has been spread in the West by Westerners who didn't know what noble was, but had some pretty good ideas about which direction to go in. And so that's where we wind up with Western Buddhism today, is the real teachings of the Buddha still remain mostly in Asia because of this cultural boundary that we have between, you know, uh, who was it, Horace Greeley, that said East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. And we saw that borne out big time in the Second World War. So that there's been that resistance. The cultures are different. The language is different. The food is different. How many things, Marcus, are different? The women are really different. <laughs> the whole way that the people look at government and the whole way that police look at their jobs, everything is different here. And so uh, you could say then that the culture is almost now has been molded and formed over the past number of centuries into promoting the noble mind. And so uh, Buddhism is still very, very strong in Thailand. But in the West, Westerners would rather learn about Buddhism from other Westerners. 
And as I was mentioning to Marcus before some of you called, I just got a couple of nastygrams as comments from someone who says that they were a Diamond Way Buddhist. But basically, it's the Westerners' mentality that comes to Buddhism. And when they pick Buddhism up, they think that they own it like it was a Gatling gun. And they can use that thing to just spray their hate and understanding of Buddhism all over the place. Take art, take a target, take anyone to be a target. And so basically what I think this looks like is the holdover from Southern redneck Christianity, most likely uh, Baptist, certainly evangelical, who have changed from it being an actual religion into it being a political thing. And so now for the past 40 or 50 years, all of these kids in America that have been raised in a religion that's turned into a political scene want to leave Christianity and they go and they find Buddhism and they say, aha, look what a magic toy I've got here. I'm going to put this in ammunition to the Gatling gun that I got when I was a Christian. And so this is this is the the issue with Christianity or actually Buddhism in the West is, is that it is a cultural Western thing rather than the culture that has built into Tainan to foster nobility, that our culture fosters competition. It fosters tribalism. It fosters um, racism, systemic racism. And those that are oppressed can see it. And those that uh, are, <laughs> it's pretty hard to stand on the top of the heap and recognize that you're standing on the top of the heap and then have compassion for the heap of people you're standing on. Because I mean, as long as they're willing to lay there and let me stand on them, I've got a good view from here. And so this is what's happening that's built into the culture. The racism and all of the stratifications of society are something that needs to be broken down. but not in society. Society is already set the way that it is. What can happen instead is individuals within that society can leave that society and go find something better for their own minds. Go find some good friends, go find some nobility, go find some really um, honorable people to hang out with. But that's the way to go rather than trying to fix our society. But our society would say, hey, you find something bad with our society, something broken, it's your job to go fix it. And look how many people are trying to fix our society. And all of them are clawing at the paint job that the fast guy just worked really hard to put up. <laughs> Because that's all they know how to do is just to paint it, <laughs> make it look pretty. <laughs> yes, Robert. Um, I so I have a comment slash question. So, you know, um, I I studied philosophy at university, and 
And um, one of the things I learned, you know, was, uh, or one of the people, I, a couple of the philosophers I studied um, was uh, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and the successors to Nietzsche, right? And I believe I sent you a message about this a while back. Um, but, you know, Schopenhauer was profoundly influenced by uh, bad translations of Buddhism into the German. Um, however, um, he was influenced enough so that Nietzsche, who is considered the successor to Schopenhauer and also his own figure in his own right, um, came along and was profoundly influenced by Schopenhauer. And then he proceeded to do a demolition job on Christianity in the world of philosophy <laughs> and just a total demolition. Like he really ripped apart um, the religion and um, and he did such a thorough job of it um, that his successors, the postmodernist philosophers in the 20th century, like Foucault, Bataille, Derrida, you know, all these Nietzscheans came out on both the uh, mostly on the left, but also on the right, you know, influencing Nazism, et cetera. But there was a lot on the left, too. Um, and it was those philosophers that went on to to really deconstruct the systemic racism and the mechanisms of power and, um, you know, the role of the church and the role of the state. And it was all of those people, including Noam Chomsky, you know, that really mm -hmm. did the modern day demolition job and all of these institutions. So it's quite interesting to tie all this back to Schopenhauer being influenced by German translations of Buddhism uh, back in the day. But the reason the, now where the question comes in is, you know, in studying philosophy, you know, one thing I noticed, and it was just an observation, um, and I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, is there's a saying that philosophy looks down on all the other disciplines. You know, there's a philosophy well, of science. Position. I mean, that's what it's for. Right. And I've noticed that when things happen in that intellectual philosophical realm, it ends up trickling throughout the entire society in a profound way and usually very watered down way um, at the level of that. Funny you person. use both trickle and watered down. That's kind of funny. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But generally speaking, that's what happens. You know, like some people argue that one of the outcomes of the postmodernist you know, de deconstruction of Christianity has been consumerism. That because people don't believe in God anymore, now they believe in the new Toyota, you know, or the handbag or the this or that, right? Well, you know, and, um, and uh, well, so I'm if curious. If you think to, of it like this, where you could say that they, uh, religion keeps people locked in the first of the uh, four um modes of clinging and when that first mode of clinging is getting unlocked then people will naturally gravitate to the other modes of clinging including materialism as well as tribalism okay so those are the two secondary things now why do i say then that christianity keeps people locked up in that number one is self-preservation instinct that's what the religion is all about 
is let's bind things together so that you feel safe and secure. And that's what it's all about. You got to learn to feel safe and secure. And if you don't do it our way, we're going to threaten you with hell. But if you feel safe and secure, you've got heaven. Right. And so it's always this back and forth that they keep people on edge, lying to them often, telling them they're in danger of things that don't exist. That's what racism is all about, is lying to people about things that don't exist. And this is part of our culture. But the point is really that we need to make is, is that we as individual people with our own little eyes and ears and thinking things and all of that can see that and recognize that that is not a society that I want to swim in. Okay. Think of the analogy that you've heard the analogy that cream rises to the top right but that's when you're in milk what happens in a sewer <laughs> turds rise to the top that's what happens <laughs> so so you can imagine then that you're already the cream where what lake are you going to swim in are you going to swim in that culture that's based in uh, racism, based in con crowd control, based in keeping people angry so that they'll vote for a certain group, keeping them full of rules as ammunition. Okay? Got to give them a whole bunch of rules. In fact, you got to give them so many rules that they can't follow them all. Well, what are you going to do with a whole bunch of rules you can't follow? You give them away. You make other people follow your rules. That's what happens in Christianity is just full of rules for other people to follow. And if those people don't follow my rules, then I'm better than they are. Hmm. Even if I don't keep the rules myself. Yeah, Robert, go ahead. So, you know, I, I guess kind of to put my question another way. Um, what are your thoughts on the relationship between intellectuals and the rest of society? Um, because it seems to me that... Oh, yeah, quick answer. Yeah. The rest of society isn't thinking at all, and those who can think and do think are thinking the wrong things. <laughs> so we've got two jobs to do. And the right to, and the first job is let's wake enough people up to what's really worth thinking about. Hmm. That's where the Dhamma comes in. Okay, we can't fix the rest of them. Those people have to wake up from being unable to think and see straight and just believe the lies that they've been told. And when they wake up to say, wait a minute, something else has got to be here. Let me go on a search. Only then will they be able to find the Dhamma. They can't find it if they're not looking for it, and they would rather hold to the beliefs and the lies that they've been told. And so that's the, uh, where society uh, fits in. And like I say, it is vast. Even the Buddha talked about it in the sense that we can't save the world. Jesus talked about it. We can't save the world. 
And in fact, the world doesn't need saving and the world doesn't want to be saving. It depends upon what definition of the world here. I'm throwing word around without actually talking about it. Am I talking about the planet Earth? Am I talking about human society? Yeah, it's the human society we're calling the world. Though it's got variations in various places, it's all wrapped up on a pack of lies that we're told that used to be legitimate answers. Religion so, used to be quite legitimate. Go ahead. Go ahead, Russ. So, you know, one thing we've talked about, um, you know, at some length is how a lot of the cultures that were not, that are not Western, you know, like say in South America, right, which is semi-Western, but, you know, or, um, you know, in Asia, obviously, I would also imagine in Africa, although we've never talked about African culture, um, there seems to be a lot of qualities that are more wholesome, you know, than in the West, right? Like we've talked a lot about South America and how, mm-hmm. you know, the family structure and the policing and the general laid back attitude of the people there, they're, they're, it feels much more laid back there, you know, than many other places I've been. Um, they haven't been is, frightened to death in the same way that uh, the, the British and the uh, Europeans were frightened by Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm. Their that, Christianity so was solid, but they weren't frightened like the entire culture was. I mean, uh, Pope Alexander the the Sixth in about uh, 500 A.D. They just had a stranglehold on all of the culture and everything. This is, by the way, the guy that uh, uh, Martin eventually put up the bull. I think that this guy was dead for years before he put up the bull, but it was the, the Roman Catholic Church that had become what it was that caused such a revolt, which happened to just coincide with the fact that Gutenberg's press, I mean, all of this stuff comes together, and the Catholic Church, we don't really understand what it was like before then, but everybody came out of that situation terrified and mm. western culture is based upon terrorizing that's why mm. we call people who are freedom fighters terrorists <laughs> all they're really fighting for is the freedom but what freedom are they fighting their terror their own internal terror and mm. islam does a pretty good job of terrorizing its folks too right but yeah it, uh, it's very yeah in, in fact, that's possibly one of the reasons for the basic downfall of Judaism beside uh, genocide is that where's your barb? Where's your stain? How do you herd your cattle if you don't have a cattle pod? <laughs> that's I mean, Jews are like herding cats. You can't get them to do that anymore. Why? Because you don't have any terror left. We've got mostly just ritual. Right. Have a hell. They never got one. Right. You know, it's so funny uh, because I think in in the Western society, there's this basic underlying anxiety, you know, which is really reminiscent of that fear um, that has been instilled into many Western people. And it's to the point where, you know, say with my partner, um, who's uh, who's uh, South American. Um, I will sometimes ask questions about something 
And she'll say, oh, you're being anxious. And I'll say, no, I'm not. I'm just asking questions, right? And, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there is a sense in which she's right, right? Where my need to ask questions has been so ingrained as a habit <clears throat> that I don't even see it as anxiety, but at the subtle level, it kind of is, right? <laughs> Excellent. Robert, congratulations. Yeah. That's a really excellent point for you. I've seen it for a long time. But now you can see it for yourself. That's what this process is all about. You've investigated well enough to recognize that your uh, need to talk and need to ask questions comes from anxiety. Right. And it's very subtle. You know, you don't even emotionally relate to that, or I don't even emotionally relate to it. But at the subtle level, that's what it is. Yes, and if you actually uh, inspect it and actually relating to it and begin to see it at that point when you're about to talk, that would be a way of doing it. So hmm. um, this this whole idea that if we are around nobles or in some cases just other cultures that will i mean that was an excellent question for her to ask you very jewish of her by the way <laughs> she said that to me many times and and she knows that <laughs> i have anxiety and so she'll point out to me oh i think you're being anxious and uh -huh. I'll, I'll think to myself no i'm not but then when i think about it a second time i'm like you know she's right <laughs> of course she's right, but yeah. you didn't want to give her that in the first place. Right, right. Uh -huh. Just because she said it is wrong. Right. <laughs> but but then right. you come back and you look at it again and again and again. That's right. And when we begin to see that stuff, pretty soon you'll be able to see it before it leaks out of your face. Right. You can totally. stop it. Totally. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let's get back to what we were talking about uh, in the sense of Buddhism coming to the West. I don't know whether um, I see Carl is back, uh, but Scott is gone. So anyway, this goes back to relate to, to Scott's original question is, is that by the time Buddhism got to the West enough to where it is noticeable on the radar. Uh, it had gotten here in an ignoble way. It was brought here by people who didn't understand Buddhism. That in fact, what you could say was that the Buddhism that was delivered to the West is very, very much like a shiny, shiny object, a beautiful, let us say, ornate box, a cube, say, a Chinese puzzle in a way. And that uh, they go bonkers over the beauty of uh the visualizations and hearing the chanting and the peacefulness is kind of an ideal and all of that kind of stuff. But what they fail to understand is, is that it's a trick. That it actually is 
a box puzzle. And that you've got to figure out how to open it because the triple gem is what's inside. The real prize is inside this beautiful ornate box. Which makes sense because often really beautiful ornate boxes are beautiful and ornate because they're intended to carry something of great value for the king. All right. But Buddhism of the West has fallen in love with the box. And they are not understanding. And in fact, uh, they're afraid to open it. Because, in fact, what they really would be opening when they do open the box is their own mind. And as you all three here have known, that when you first start looking in there, you don't like it at all. Actually, we didn't like it before we started to take a look, and we know we don't like it. That's, in fact, what we find in the ordinary people unschooled in the uh, Buddhism. That in fact, the word that is used is putajana, the Pali word, putajana, which basically means son of the soil or the people of the dirt, if you want to get really snooty about it. <laughs> okay, so the putajana, the sons of the soil, that's the puta part, uh, or the location of the land, the people of the land do not understand the mind. And they don't want to understand the mind because they're much more interested in getting whatever they can out of the land. And 99% of the people are like that. We're looking for that 1% and the percentages I'm not even sure of. I don't even know how to make a statistical guess out of it, but I do know that the vast majority, like 90%, is not able to hear the Dhamma and they don't want to. And when they do hear the Dhamma, they will if they if they do find the box open they'll slam it closed because they want it to fit into what they already know because it feels insecure dangerous even to go out someplace else and this is one of the reasons why we need a noble to teach the dhamma rather than ordinary people teaching ordinary people, or in this case, the blind leading the blind. And that's what Western Buddhism is all about. And so all of the treachery, all of the greed, all of the um, willpower that is built into the Christianity that has a whole lot to do with self-protection. And people, when they realize they don't need protection because they're not harming anyone, is a really difficult concept. Oh, no, even if I stop harming people, those people will still come harm me. And the answer to that is, well, if you wait around for them to harm you, they might do that. Why don't you take a hike? <laughs> and then they can't catch you. They can't harm you. So get away from it all. Get away from that world. So once we understand that harmlessness and not harming each other, not creating more of the society by trying to fix something that we think is broken, that somebody else wants it that way. And come out of that society and deal with it 
In order to be able to do that, we need to find people who already know how to do that. That's the easy way. The example is, imagine that you lived in the dead of winter, out in the wilderness, where uh, in primitive times, and your fire goes out. Now you've got two choices. One is to rekindle the fire yourself, or the other one is to walk a half a mile through the snow and get a bucket of coals from your neighbor and come back. Many people would choose, hey, I'm going to go walk because it's really hard to find enough dry wood to actually start a fire, especially if you don't know how to start one. So this is the whole point about the Dhamma, is, is that the Buddha was able to spark his own mind, and since then, the spark from the Buddha, to catch his own mind on fire so that he'd get enough light to see what was going on, has been passed down through the generations and continues to be passed down, just not in the West. They haven't gotten that spark yet. So that's what we've got to have here is the guys who've got a spark who can go around sparking up their life. And maybe, just maybe, somebody will pay attention and start to learn something. But don't expect too much. Yes, Robert. You know, one thing I've noticed is, and I was thinking about this yesterday, you know, as I, I started in the Dhamma when I was 17 with a local Zen group, and then I'd read books and this and that. And it, it impacted my life in lots of subtle and profound ways, you know, especially my Vipassana retreats in Thailand. But it didn't really take off, and I wasn't really able to put it into action until I started working with you, you know. And, you know, you, I think one of the great benefits of speaking with you is you show very direct, specific ways of putting it into action. And you also give an example with your videos, you know, and all your talks with so many other people, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and there's one thing to to get the theory of it or parts of the theory of it, I should say. And it's a whole other thing to really put it into practice and give, provide that example. And I think that's what a teacher is able to do that right. you know, books cannot. There is an occasional interesting person who will sit down at a piano and start to play it. And he keeps playing it for a while. And all of a sudden, he's playing music. It's called self-taught. Generally, piano players who are self-taught are not self-taught. They're just very, very observant. But in fact, Dan said at one time that he learned a lot by watching videos of other drummers. you got to watch closely. And that's what the, good, the best part of a teacher is, is that the teacher will help you to slow down or actually slow down his own drumming so that you could pick the pace, so, uh, the pace up and begin to practice and begin to get it. Okay, this is the quality of a, uh, of a music teacher. It's the quality of a sports coach. It's the quality of a math professor. All of those disciplines are really difficult to understand without a teacher. And the Dhamma is probably the most, because it goes so much against our culture. 
And this is why Western Buddhism is failing, is because they never had the actual coaches that they needed. And that often when they find them, they won't recognize them as a coach. An example of that is, is that possibly everybody in America knows that there's quite a number of Buddhist temples around the country, and yet they don't go to them. They don't go to them. And yet, um, Marcus, you've been to a number of temples in Thailand. Wouldn't you say that uh, uh, that there's a fair number of nobles when you go to yeah, these Yeah, absolutely. Blocks? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the nobility is available in the West. It's just avoided because of these old biases, these old uh, uh, boundaries, these old uh, tribal issues. This old idea of, oh, we are white people. We're better than those brown people. We're better than those other people. That's what we've been taught. Oh, go ahead. I noticed that like Westerners will only go to the temples in Buddhist like scene as long as they have something to gain, like free meditation class, free yoga class. But as soon as you start taking away from them, like, challenging challenging their mind that's the, the temples they're not gonna like so there is no surprise as you said they won't recognize the coach mm -hmm. the work they're actually doing they want to be doing something and getting some result instead of losing the result you're right okay so uh do not expect large numbers of people by the millions and millions and millions to come join Buddhism in the West. They, that may be something that will happen a hundred years from now, but they're going to have to go ahead and bury Christianity and a few other things first, and then go through a very heavy-duty materialism at the same time that AI is taking all the jobs away, leaving the people with nothing. And when they've got absolutely nothing and they can see nothing really clearly, then they'll begin to understand sunyata and then they'll be ready for the Buddha. <laughs> but that's going to take a long, long time for the West to come around to that. Centuries, maybe. Meanwhile, individuals can figure it out for themselves, get that spark. Do some blowing, get some anapanasati going and blow that, and kindle that fire of, of knowledge, get it blazing so that you can really see what the mind is, so that we can recognize that it's not so bad after all. As we started talking, remember that people really don't want to see their own mind because they're afraid of what they're going to find. And that happens with every meditator. They really don't want to see what's in there. They don't like it. They've got a higher opinion of themselves than what they actually remember themselves to be. And in fact, every dirty little deed you did, you remember it and you hold it up. And every time you think about it, you feel bad again. Rather than saying, oh, look at that. I really learned a lot from that scene. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to do that anymore, which is already true. And so instead of congratulating yourself for growth, we punish ourselves. Instead, because that's the society we live in. We live in a punishment society, keeping people afraid, rather than merely rehabilitating them. And so each one of us has to find noble friends that are going to help us 
to rehabilitate our mind rather than just merely punishing it. Come out of our anxiety, to come out of our need to know and recognize, hey man, everything is already aglow. I don't need anything. No place to go. So this is how Buddhism has come to the West with a dent. Actually, a hole in the bottom. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't mean that it's going to remain that way. It's going to slowly, the real stuff is going to slowly seep in to those who are willing to hear it and practice it and put it into uh, their own life and get great benefit out of it. Enormous benefit. The Buddha called on Apanasati a great fruit. A great benefit. Everybody who practices it well gains that benefit. And so that's why nobility will slowly, how do you say, uh, trickle down, even though what's trickling is watered down. I think that's so funny, Robert. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat> yeah, because Buddhism then has been watered down. Watered down in what way? Well, it's the same thing as the box. All you get is the box. The real thing, the real deal, is hidden away. Why is it hidden? It's hidden actually by nothing more than the ignorance of the person who is unwilling to open the box. So where do we go from here, Robert? Where do we go from here? Knowing that we can't fix society, what could we do? Paul, oh, you got a clue? Where do we go leave from the here? Society. We just leave it be. <laughs> yeah, just leave it alone. And guess what? We didn't need it after all. That all the things that we thought we needed from the society, we probably don't need them. So, what we do need is a sense of well-being. We need a sense of uh, okayness. Well-being, okay, everything is all right, everybody's the winner. This is the way that we need to live our lives, and then our lives would be very easy because we didn't want anything. We don't do much because we don't do much. Uh, in some places, some quarters of our society will be called lazy. But if we say, oh, we're really ritualized and we're really um, religious, then they'll let, away, let us get away with being uh, lazy. And so that's the way to live is just let it all go. We don't need that society. We need to recognize that we don't need it, that we're okay without it. Then we can spend our time finding a few noble friends to hang out with. Now we'll have a whole couch full of lazy bombs. With no place to go and nothing to do, and they're just satisfied, hunky-dory with that. 
So, Paul, Marcus, do you have anything to add with this? Or are we going to leave it? I was just like thinking this? about the log in the bog. Let's all drag that log out of the bog, let it dry out so it can float on top. That's right. We've got to get the mind out of that culture. Let it dry out a while. Recognize that what you think you are is actually nothing but the, uh, let us say, the sewage that leaked into you when you were completely saturated with the culture. And that when you dry out, naturally, you'll clean up that what you thought was you was only the dirt and dust that had been stuck on. That's not who you are at all. But if we hate that dirt, then we'll avoid it rather than cleaning it off. So, yes, that's a good story. Log in the bog. Got to let it dry out. Get away from it all. Recognize that you are not that bog. Robert, have you gone already? I think he did. I think he just turned his computer off. And that... So, Carl, you got any last words? Yeah, I was going to add to the same thing. Like, right, right now, I just, like, went away for to do some hiking. And, and usually it would be looking for that stillness inside, like, the mountains and the vicious space and the trees. But that, now I realized it's just too much work to find that stillness when I can just find it while laying on a bed or <laughs> sitting on a couch. It's just too that much work, like hiking mm. the mountains for hours and hours a day just to find some peacefulness. So I'm kind of laughing at myself for actually like doing these things now because I'm like, I can enjoy them, but do I really need to do them anymore? Well, I would add this. And that is, is that that sense of well-being and peacefulness and quietude and lack of anxiety will come more with good breathing. And that's what we need to do. So instead of going hiking in the woods in order to breathe, remember to breathe. To breathe like you were hiking for a while. Get the body really energized and then that'll just flush out that adrenaline. And then we could be at rest. You're right. That's in fact a good reason why people go hiking is because they feel good afterwards. And pretty soon they learn to get to feel good while they're doing it. That's what they call the runner's high. And all they need to do is to figure out that it's not about the muscles that they're puffing up and down and the uh, bones that they're shattering and the uh, cartilage that they're wiping away. It's all about the breathing anyway. <laughs> But I think most people feel good because it's also like suffering and you feel like you're getting somewhere, some kind of goal. For me, that was the longest time amount of the time. That was the main point. But now it's, it's not. I, I, I realize every time I can see that, oh, I'm suffering mm -hmm. and I'm enjoying because I think I'm getting somewhere. But then, right, exactly. That's myself. so deeply built into our culture, isn't it? You can't feel good without having a reason to feel good. And we're changing that is you have the ability to feel good. Why don't you just do that and forget about what you need to do in order to get it? Just you got it. You don't have to go win a prize to feel like a champion that just won a prize. You could actually just have an imagination of winning that prize. And that's all I need to do. 
can do it all. And then I recognize I don't even have to imagine wanting a prize to feel that good. I can just take a deep breath and feel that good. <laughs> but our culture teaches otherwise. You got to hook two, three, four. You got to get her done. You got to go buy the book. You got to go read the book. You got to go do this, that, and the other thing. And that's not enough. You got to figure out what else you need to do. And the answer is, it's got nothing to do with what we're doing. It has everything to do with how we feel. And we have complete control over that, always have. Those people don't think, don't know that they have control over their own feelings. When they feel, let us say, betrayed and downbeaten, they don't recognize that they feel betrayed and downbeaten because they're beating themselves and betraying themselves with their thoughts. And if they'd stop thinking those kind of thoughts and stop betraying and beating on themselves and feeling bad about not being good enough <laughs> and start feeling and thinking about yourself being good enough, then we do have control over our feelings after all. This is what the sukkah is all about, is we talk ourselves into feeling really good, feeling safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied. We need to keep practicing that over and over again because we've been practicing a long time about you got to go do something to feel good. And now you have the direct path. Eka Magna is what it is in the uh, Pali and Sutta number 10. Uh, yes. Uh, the um, <clears throat> Satipatthana Sutra, the direct path. Go to your happiness directly. Do not take a side adventure into jail before you go to happiness. Do not take a side trip into a job before you go to happiness. Just go directly there, the direct path. And so, Western Buddhism has brought that idea of indirect, and they bring that to Buddhism. They don't recognize that that's not Buddhism. That's something that they bring to Buddhism, that indirectness. you got to go through God or Jesus or something. You can't go directly there. But in fact, that's been taught by Christianity for centuries. You're not good enough. Who are you to be good? Only God is good. You have to take Jesus as your savior, otherwise you're screwed. And we've got just the hell that you spend that screwed in. <laughs> and so we have to get that whole mental state out. Now, everybody will understand and agree that the facts are not the case, but the feeling is. It's still the feeling that, oh, no, if I don't do what I'm told to do, I'll have hell to pay. Recognizing that, in fact, when people are trying to pay you hell, you can just step aside. Oh, that's not me. Not my problem. So much for culture. Let's go enjoy some peace and quiet, some silence. Go directly to happiness. Do not pass go. Go directly to happiness. <laughs> That's good, yeah, I like that, directly. <laughs> Bend the space and time and just go directly to it. <laughs> uh -huh, just go right now. Just go directly into happiness right now.
All we have to do is build a skill to do that. And all we need to do to build that skill is practice. Practice. <laughs> over and over again. Practice going directly there. So let's go ahead and finish this call, guys. I think that we've had enough. So let's... Any last words at all, Carl? Marcus? No words. Everything. All right, guys. Catch you later. Thank you. Thank you, guys. See you, Marcus. Bye. See you, Robert. See you. Okay, Robert. Okay.